You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. There's plenty of coffee, um, and so we just want you to, to feel at rest here. My name's Gabe. Um, I am one of the elders here, and that was my beautiful wife, Marilla. So hard, hard act to follow. Um, <clears throat> this is a really important uh, story here, um, and I am excited to dive into it. Uh, it's, it's been, uh, as, as I think happens when, whenever we prepare uh, for something like this, um, the Lord's timing is evident, and the way that he challenges and encourages and pushes along the way has just been uh, really encouraging, especially talking today a lot about uh, Christ's authority um, that's what I have experienced and felt this, uh, this week in particular in pressing into uh, this story. So um, it's, it's a timely word, I hope and pray that it is for you as well. <clears throat> so Jesus says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. It's an impossible task, and yet Jesus did it. With the authority of God, Jesus healed and forgave. This isn't the first healing that we've read about in the book of Matthew. It certainly won't be the last. It's really a simple story, but with eternal implications. As with most of scripture, I believe that it stands on its own. You can take it at face value. And we'd like to encourage you to read scripture regularly on your own time. Really to immerse yourself in the living word of God. Honestly, even to take any of the mystique out of, out of it, uh, anything that I say or that Matt says or anyone who's up front here when we speak, um, this, none of the information is something that you can't also uh, learn and discover for yourself. While we trust the spirit to guide us up here, you have the same spirit in you. And so we uh, just encourage you to, to, to press in. There's lots of resources uh, today to to dive into God's word. Uh, but as a way of understanding themes and learning God's characters, sermons are just one way of engaging with God's word. So diving into this story, here's some of the context. We just read a, a couple weeks ago about the authority of um, Jesus through the cost of discipleship and how Jesus calmed the storms with the disciples. He was showing his authority over all creation. We studied last week uh, the story of Jesus casting out the demons into the herd of pigs, where Jesus shows his authority over the spiritual world and all darkness. And here at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples, when they return to Capernaum, he's showing his authority uh, once more over sin and darkness. These eight verses are part of what we've discussed over the last four weeks or so, uh, the last four sermons, uh, since the beginning of chapter 8, where Jesus is established as king by the authority given to him through the Father. I like that this, this story of healing a paralyzed man is used by Matthew to wrap up this section because Jesus sees the collective faith of the friends that bring this paralyzed man to him. 
Really, a lot of the miracles so far in Jesus' ministry have been with individuals. But here, a few people in faith bring their friend to Jesus, and he heals the man publicly. Of course, that's the very thing that they came for, that they were hoping for. But it isn't actually the first thing Jesus does. That's to forgive this man's sins based on his faith, but also the faith of his friends. I want to look into that uh, in in a few minutes because I think that's a really important part of the story. Uh, But before we dig in a little deeper, I want to read the other two accounts of this story, which are in Mark 2 and Luke 5. Kind of as a side note to these specific verses in this story, um, many people understandably get hung up on some of the discrepancies there seems to be uh, between the different accounts throughout the different uh, Gospels. And at Hub City, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and how important that is to our faith. So I want to touch on this briefly. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot about Jesus' authority the last four weeks. And so um, join with me in, in stepping aside here to, to look at this um, aspect of our theology a, a little bit more. Uh, first, I'll read these two other accounts. So in Mark 2, the beginning in verse 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and they could not get near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when he had made an opening, they let him down on the bed in which the paralytic, paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And here in Luke uh, chapter 5 is where the story is, 17 through 20. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down on his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. So at face value, we see that they, uh, all these stories are reflecting the same story, that a man was brought to Jesus by his friends. Jesus saw his friend's faith, and he forgave the man's sin as well as healed him. But we also see that there are other details that aren't identical between the stories, and I'm going to explain why that's okay. <laughs> uh, in the first Gospel of Matthew, where we're at, Uh, right now, we read that there's no mention of the man actually being let down through the roof, uh, just that he was brought to Jesus. In Mark and Luke, we're told some really specific details, like that there were four men, or that there were predominantly Pharisees and teachers present, and while another one says that there was maybe just a large crowd, there's no specificity to, to who was present. And lastly, perhaps most notably, the chronology of the story is different uh, in each of the Gospels as far as which, in which order different miracles took place. Uh, so the calming of the storm story, the casting out of demons, and from next week, the calling of the disciple Matthew in the different Gospels um, are occurring in different orders. 
And maybe this is something that you've seen or asked the question as to why there seems to be some differences uh, of the gospel accounts and stories like this. So I want to, again, briefly address biblical inerrancy and something also that's called um, gospel harmony. So first, biblical inerrancy is the idea that Scripture is perfect. Scripture itself claims to be perfect and without flaws, and it's written by God through human hands. And if that's true, discrepancies and differences can cause doubts of that claim. Secondly, gospel harmony is the attempt to prove inerrancy by comparing the four gospels to one another to point out that they are of the same intent or are of one mind as a more formal definition. So to address this, we first need to understand the intent of the authors who were inspired by a perfect God to record the story of Jesus. We know that through, their, through each of the introductions and closes of all these gospels, that their foremost intent was to give a faithful recollection of the life and teachings of Jesus. While God still assuredly used each of their personalities to record the stories according to their own memories and collection of facts. <coughs> Excuse me. We see, for example, that Matthew organized his gospel uh, in, in groups of similar events, and a rigid chronology didn't seem like a high value to him as much as the heart of the story, and pointing out traits of Jesus' character through the authority that he had from God. A tax collector organizing things, interesting. <laughs> in the same way that Luke recorded many more details than some of the other gospels that simply add to our understanding of the life of Jesus. So God inspires a, a doctor, a tax collector, a fisherman, and, and a teenager all to record four different accounts of the same man's life. First, I think that this is beautiful. Throughout all of Scripture, God uses a vast array of people of diverse backgrounds to record his story. It doesn't take a scholar to understand the value of the diversity in these writers. One of the advantages, of course, is that it discredits any attempt to suggest that all of it is made up. And these four different gospel writers are all bringing to light and recording to, for history the essential features of Christ's life and ministry. Essentially, what, what I believe is that the sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture exists by each author with the respect to each of their records, purposes, and audience. We should know by now that Matthew, uh, he's predominantly writing to the Jews, to the Jewish people, and that his goal is to show how each of the stories that he collected prove and point to God's sovereignty and authority. Really, details and correlating facts are obviously of great importance in order for God's word to uphold its own claim of inerrancy and perfection. I think like brushstrokes on a painting... It's the artist who decides if they're brushing left or right or up or down or dabbing a certain paint or mixing colors. <clears throat> so up close, it might lead you to think that things are confusing, but God's word stands on its own. The differences shouldn't be explained away, but they should be understood and brought to light as part of a grand collection of details and facts that accurately portray the character of God and the life of Christ. The intent and purpose 
of those details are what should be considered in a question of errancy. And here in Matthew 9 and Mark 2 and Luke 5, we clearly see that efforts were made in faith by a group of friends to bring healing to this paralytic by Christ. And each author points out these big character traits of the Lord through different perspectives of the same story. Christ's authority, our need for urgency, (coughs) and even Christ's compassion. All of these things are seen in each account, but they're highlighted more one than another through different perspectives. There's a lot more to biblical inerrancy and understanding that, but I hope that this explains an aspect of inerrancy. I pray that if you have doubts or questions in God's word and how it's perfect and can stand true, even to the biggest skeptics, I ask you to just press in. Uh, there's plenty of people here, staff and elders or others, um, and even God himself you can directly go to and ask the questions. Don't be afraid to ask the questions as, of, of trying to understand his word. All of that aside, I think that's, that's really important. We don't talk a lot about theological points necessarily uh, in and of themselves here, so I wanted to bring that up. Um, but it's not the main point of the story today, obviously. So let's look into this story. As I said, much of Scripture seems to speak for itself at face value. It can, it can be taken at face value. And so I think that the rest of my sermon this morning doesn't need to just be me talking for another half hour. Uh, but I would like to look at a few points that stand out to me in this story and tell us amazing things about the kingdom of God. The points I want to look at are our friendship, Jesus' authority for forgiveness, and the proof of his divinity. So I ask the question, who do you need to drop through the roof? Or maybe less dramatically, who do we need to bring to Jesus? We read in verse 2 here, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Obviously, these people, apparently, according to Mark, there were four of them. They brought this man seeking the healing of his body. He was paralyzed, and scholars agree that the word in its original language represents palsy, where this man was unable to function in the way that the average uh, body is intended to. He probably would have been distorted with nerve damage and muscle damage, inhibiting his ability to, to walk and do basic tasks on his own. Of course, we are all probably in agreement that this is commendable and generous of the friends to bring and seek healing of their friend. But a couple of interesting things stand out to me beyond that. First is that they didn't let any obstacles get in their way. The crowd didn't stop them. The Pharisees didn't stop them. Maybe there was other people involved that that could have stopped them, not even a roof according to the other accounts, stopped their access to bringing this man to Jesus. And when presented with a very obvious situation and expectation, Jesus actually does the unexpected. First, he forgives this man of his sin. Jesus here is pointing out that no matter what affliction we have in life, in our physical bodies, financial circumstances, you name it, his primary care is of an eternal 
nature. It's the restoration of our relationship and access to God through the forgiveness of our sins. And powerfully, God, even the the Pharisees, everyone here, and, and we can all recognize that God is the only one who can forgive sins. And so in this act, Jesus claims to be God. Even the priests and Pharisees could acknowledge when someone's sins might have been accounted for if, some, if they saw um, of the sacrifice that was given at the temple, but they themselves were never the ones forgiving the sins directly. And here Jesus says, I forgive your sins, not based on any sacrifice of a person that this person has done, but based solely on the love and authority of Jesus because of the faith of his friends. Another interesting note here is that the friends were urgent. They didn't wait for Jesus to finish teaching. They didn't ask for an appointment. They just desperately wanted their friend to be healed. I'm reminded of the verse in 2 Corinthians, which says, Now, today is the day of salvation. An old Scottish minister who, um, as a side note, has a great Abraham Lincoln neckbeard. Um, his name is Andrews, Alexander McLaren, and he brought up a good a point in his notes on this, this verse, actually from, the, the, from Mark's account. Where he says, As Abraham's intercession delivered Lot, as Paul in the shipwreck was the occasion of safety to all the crew, so one man's faith may bring blessings to another. But if the sick man, too, had not had faith, he would not have come or let himself be brought at all. He would certainly not have considered, uh, consented to reach Christ's presence by such a strange and to him a dangerous way. They all had faith, the friends and this man himself, to seek healing, but only the friends had the physical ability to bring him to Jesus. If some people can run to Jesus, some people choose to spit in his face. Some can grasp for him in a crowd. Others can have him invite himself over to their house for dinner. But some need the help of others to be brought to Jesus. Looking into this next verse here, uh, when challenged by the teachers and the Pharisees on the point of him being able to forgive sins, Jesus, who we read, interpreted their thoughts calls out their doubts and accusation. He says, so which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive, to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There it is, case in point that you may know that I, Jesus, have the authority as God to forgive sins, which is not immediately a tangible thing we can see with our eyes. Watch me heal this man's body publicly as proof of this authority. That's why Matthew records that everyone in the crowd glorified God because they knew that only God could do such a thing. Maybe it's you sitting figuratively on the floor, paralyzed, up city, Jesus forgives you. And the most complex pains and paralyzing things in this life, even literally palsy or paralyzed, will one day be restored. That's a promise we have from Christ. 
There's, of course, in this story, as I've seen uh, in most of the stories recorded in Matthew so far, a clear contrast being represented. And that contrast is between these friends that brought the paralytic as well as the Pharisees that are claiming Jesus' acts are blasphemous. The scribes and Pharisees that were present most likely were not there out of earnest curiosity, but out of trying to find fault and heresy in what they believed Jesus' movement was spreading. And accordingly, Jesus gave them a lot to talk about this day. We have to believe that these friends meant only good in their hearts for the paralyzed man. Even the paralyzed man meant good in his heart if he was willing to be brought to Jesus to be healed. But Jesus calls out the Pharisees and scribes and says, why do you have evil in your hearts? A contrast to these friends. Why do you immediately doubt and look for obstacles? Again, in contrast to these friends who first had faith and saw no obstacle in bringing this man to Jesus. The Pharisees could not have left in disbelief. Jesus proved his authority in a very public way, and the crowd, we are told, marveled. They feared, which interestingly enough is that we get the word phobia from the same word that's used here. They were terrified and frightened, the crowd was. So put yourself in the shoes, or perhaps sandals, of the Pharisees and people in the crowd. Imagine you witness with your own eyes this miracle. It probably would have shocked you and surprised you, but especially in our day and age, I doubt it would have been your initial reaction just to have simple joy. A man whose body was physically tortured and twisted and weak was healed before their eyes, and he stands and takes his bed and goes home. The emotion of the crowd was fear and astonishment, but that drove them to see that nothing else could have done this except for the very power of God. And so they worshiped God. They glorified God. My assumption is that the Pharisees knew what they saw, but for their own sake, they couldn't admit to it. They let doubt stay and continued to look for a way to trap Jesus in his words and actions. I want to share this challenge to all of us, myself included. We all have friends and acquaintances that are lost and want healing. Let's break a hole through the roof. Not here. That's almost happened before, so (laughs) careful. Let's err on the side of faithful friendship and not pharisaical doubt. I've often said in relation to the knowledge of salvation that if we have the cure to cancer, it's foolish to not share that news. But perhaps more poignantly, uh, in studying for the sermon, I came across an African proverb that was shared uh, in another sermon on the same verse, which says, there is only one crime worse than murder in the desert. And that is to know where water is and not tell. If you're in this room today, you know something about Jesus. And if you believe him as your savior, then you know what he's done for you. Don't keep it a secret. And if you don't believe that Jesus is your savior and you're here to ask questions, that's okay. Keep asking questions and press in. But I implore you to drink from the water in the desert that we present to you every Sunday. 
to be let down through the roof in front of Jesus' feet, who has the authority to heal and forgive eternally. Earlier this week, uh, I felt paralyzed and burdened by a situation, and I was really desperate for help that only God could provide. I also needed the help of others to share the burden with. I had the privilege of uh, meeting with a few elders and, and staff Uh, who prayed with me, and despite some obstacles, like running late to a meeting and uh, the weight of sharing a burden, they helped take me to Jesus. I knew I couldn't do it on my own. Another story that comes to mind is of a good friend of mine in Turkey. I had several roles when I was living over there for a couple years, uh, but the greater privilege and responsibility that I had was sharing the good news of Christ with those around me. One man in particular, my my language coach, uh, when I first met him, he wasn't wasn't a believer, uh, but he was really curious about my faith. Over the course of a few months, we began to talk more and more about faith and the gospel and scripture and theology. He yearned to become a believer, but there were obstacles. There was the obvious obstacle of our language barrier, that while he was teaching me Turkish, I was exchanging and teaching him English. And some of this, the conversations we were having were beyond our skills or abilities at the time. But we pressed in. We wrestled and thankfully improved our language in the process through scripture and the good news of Christ. There's the obstacle of his culture. There's a country with over 80 million people and only a few thousand Christians. So it wasn't familiar or common to him. He had the obstacle of his family. He was of a Muslim background, and if it came out that he were converting to Christianity, he would have likely been disowned, even excluded from his inheritance. There's the obstacle of counting the cost that he had. In a country where you have to put your religion on your state ID, it makes it hard to get a job. He had to navigate these obstacles, and I had the great joy of being able to navigate those obstacles with him, but that didn't stop us. It didn't stop me from encouraging him time and time again that from my own personal experience, it was worth making this life change. It didn't stop him from desiring what he came to believe to be true, and along with several others, we brought him to the feet of Jesus. We dropped him straight through the roof. And his life has been changed ever since. This story of the paralytic also shows the way that people brought someone to Jesus without being manipulative, but in true faith and persistence. I don't want to lead you to misunderstand the main point of this story. Uh, It isn't strictly about evangelism, uh, since clearly uh, Matthew's showing us this overarching theme of Christ's authority but we've touched on that so many times, I wanted to lean into this other aspect of the story today. We have an example in this story. And we're called to bring people to Jesus, both for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins, but also for the healing of their bodies and the restoration of their life on this earth. I think the correlation between Jesus' authority and responsibility is best described in his own words, from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. <laughs>